This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor Buzz Schur, Director of the International Criminal Law and Justice Programs. Learn more about that program at law.unh.edu slash ICLJ. Welcome to the show, Buzz. Good to be here. So the headlines this week have been rife with uh, questions about proper search and seizure techniques and process and politics and Donald Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago facility getting raided by the FBI. So before we dive into the specifics of what what happened at Mar-a-Lago and everything around that and the politics and such, baseline, if what is the process for search and seizure? Say there's the the federal government or the Department of Justice has some need to uh, go into a, someone else's property and look for materials related to something they're investigating. What does that process look like? Well, little backdrop. The Fourth Amendment says the government can engage in unreasonable searches and seizures. The primary way that a search becomes reasonable is if you have a search warrant supported by probable cause. And what that means is simply this, uh, the, the police and, the, and or the prosecutor goes to a judge, an independent third party, not employed by uh, the prosecuting agency, and they go to the judge and they say, we have in an, an affidavit that is sworn to, we have this evidence that says to us that uh, one, there's evidence of possible criminal activity, that a crime has been committed or is being committed. And two, we believe if we were to search this place at this time, there is probable cause, we have good reason to believe, there's probable cause to believe there would be evidence of the crime we believe is being committed at that location. So, and and, and the judge reviews that, uh, and if the judge agrees that there is, makes an independent judgment, if the judge agrees, yes, you have probable cause to believe a crime has been or is being committed, and you have probable cause to believe that there is evidence of this crime at this time at the location you're seeking to search. The judge believes that, then he or she issues the search warrant, and they are authorized to go to that place and search it. They need to show the warrant to the resident or occupant of that place. uh, And then they are allowed to search it and they can ask, uh, they can ask uh, anybody at that location to uh, stand aside. Uh, They can ask them, um, uh, well, they can ask him did not get in the way of the search. Uh, And they can search uh, all those locations at that place where the evidence they articulated they believe might be at that location could be found. Um, 
So that's called the particularity requirement and the specificity requirement. You know, you can't just go a general search rummaging around anywhere. The classic example is, you know, if you're if you're looking for uh, a stolen uh, large screen TVs at a particular at your house, say, you can't go looking in drawers for stolen large screen TVs. Right now, of course, if you're looking for documents, you know, it's fair game. You, Fair game. And in the process of looking for that, which you have said you're looking for, if there is, they see evidence that is in plain view that gives them immediate probable cause to believe it's evidence of a crime, you know, like when they're searching your house for stolen uh, large screen TVs, they happen to see a baggie of what appears to be cocaine on your kitchen table. You know that that's contraband, and and it's immediately apparent they have probable cause to believe it's contraband. So, it's not a it, a search warrant doesn't allow them to look for whatever evidence they can find of whatever crime comes to mind. It's focused on what the the probable cause they originally had to search that place for these items. And there's to because there's been so much question about about this uh, with specifically with the Trump situation. If, if the Department of Justice ends up not doing due diligence with making sure they have all the necessary information leading up to a request for search or seizure, or the judge just doesn't follow what they're supposed to be doing, there's dire consequences to the case and the careers of the individuals involved. It's not something they're just going to willy nilly throw out there. Yeah, yeah, it's not good to lie and um, lie on affidavits, and there's a process for sorting that out. Uh, and it's uh, if the judge, uh, you know, does the uh, grants a search warrant uh, based on their finding that there is probable cause when it's just just not there. There's a process for remedying that problem. Now, let's get specifically with what happened at Mar-a-Lago on, uh, it was, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong month, on August 8th, the uh, FBI raided the Mar-a-Lago facility down in Florida that Trump owns, it's his resort, it's his partially his private residence in addition to being a business because he does live there a fair bit um and there was various documents there were boxes of documents that the national archives claimed that were uh in his possession and were not returned i i mean to you, you as someone who's in, an expert in criminal justice i mean is there a anything that seems extraordinary with regards to this in any way um in terms of the basics of search and seizure, no. You know, the background is, you know, there are uh, uh, two or three federal statutes that say the president can't just take stuff out of the White House when he stops being the president. Uh, some involves classified information. Some of it involves other kinds of do uh, just documents in general that are not classified. Um, so there's a number of statutes that say that. So there was some evidence throughout the presidency that uh, uh, President Trump was tearing up documents, flushing them down the toilet, uh, uh, shredding them, all of which uh, violates uh, at least some of those statutes. You know, you can't do that. Even when you're president, you can't do that because the documents are not possession of the president. They're the possession of the country. And what happens when a president leaves office, 
documents go to the uh, National Archives. Uh, they are the repository for all documents coming from the White House and most all government documents in, in, protected by statute. Um, so what happened here is apparently, uh, I think by his own admission, uh, Donald Trump took a number of boxes of documents with him to Mar-a-Lago. Um, the eventually the National Archives became aware of that and they said, hey, give them back to us. You can't do that. Uh, eventually, and this went on for months and months, eventually he and they went down there and he ended up giving them 15 boxes or 25 boxes. It's a little unclear to me. At least 15 boxes of documents. Um, the National Archives subsequently uh, determined that they didn't give him everything. He didn't give them everything. And they, there's a back and forth between he, his lawyers and the National Archives and uh, DOJ about give us the rest of the documents. And this went on for a while. And then, and then uh, the DOJ sent some people down there, including a counterterrorism expert, uh, to, um, uh, to look at what was still there and basically said, you got to give us this stuff. And nothing happened. That was, I think, uh, in uh, June or so. Um, and nothing happened. Um, and that's what led to, best we can tell, that's what led to the search warrant. Because it's a crime for him to have documents that he took from the White House. Does it, does it matter if the documents were quote classified or anything of that nature i mean does that make any difference in the case because ultimately the president does have the ability to unclassify documents uh yep. under his purview but in this situation i don't see how that really is valid it, it, well it it, it it matters and it doesn't matter um it it doesn't matter in that there's there's statutes that say it doesn't matter whether they're classified or not you can't you got to give the stuff to the National Archives. You don't get to take it home with you. It's not your stuff. It's the government's stuff. It's the country's stuff. There is a statute that focuses specifically on classified uh, documents. Now, best I can determine from what's available publicly, to the president has to declassify documents while he's president. He can't do it after he's president, right. you know. Uh, number one. Number two, it, it technically it is not officially declassified until the stamp on the document, the classified stamp on the document, it's changed to they put a new stamp saying unclassified and it's dated and signed. It's it's determined who unclassified it's written in who's unclassified it and what date that occurred on best we can tell understanding incomplete information here right. best we can tell none of these so-called classified or unclassified documents uh that were in these uh, boxes even the ones that they eventually got back none of them were marked as unclassified at any particular time you know it sounds very technical but uh it's a process you know 
um, and and you know we we all depend in our lives on processes. We hate them when we're the victims of processes, and we love them when you know they're they impose a, a regimen that gets more accurate information. There's been a lot of criticism coming from conservative pundits out there with regards to this. Obviously, it was going to be expected no matter what. We have a Democratic president in office uh, in in control of the executive branch um, with a very heated, (laughs) to put it gently, situation with regards to the changing of of that branch's power. The... Is it, to you, a little hypocritical, possibly, that we didn't see this same sort of FBI raid-level consequence of taking materials from the White House? There has been uh, talk, especially, of the Clintons, when they left office, taking a considerable amount of uh, things from the the White House at the time. Hillary Clinton with her email server, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um yeah. A couple things. People have been prosecuted, Democrats and Republicans, for unauthorized taking of documents. Uh, I can't remember his name, but there was a well-known Democrat who ended up with a misdemeanor conviction for taking a document away from a secure location. So it's not regular and common, but it's 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 uh, it's not unusual for people to be prosecuted for this, particularly when, you know, if the documents may involve have top secret information and the allegation is that some of the documents here might have top secret information, which a, a foreign power, it might be useful to get a hold of. So so number one, it's not uncommon not unusual for people to be prosecuted. You know, I haven't heard, I haven't seen anything from credible sources that suggest the uh, Clintons took documents, President Clinton took documents out of the White House that were the country's documents, uh, as opposed to, you know, item things, literally physical things. Furniture and such. Furniture and stuff like that. that. That's a... That's a whole different thing. Uh, the statutes focus primarily on on documents. Um, you know, it uh, one of the beauties of our country and the First Amendment is uh, we openly entertain and encourage public speculation and speech about just about anything you know, short of inciting, directly inciting violence. And, you know, we've come close on that separate issue. Um, So, you know, all of us are speculating as to what is really going on here. Mm A couple additional things. Uh, Number one, I think unless you're incredibly partisan, Nobody really believes that this was Joe Biden's doing. I think, you know, the White House, I'm sure, has stayed so far away from this and told Merrick Garland up front, we don't know, we don't know, want to know anything about what you're doing in this regard. You know, they're not stupid. They're experienced uh, political uh, uh, bodies. So uh, number two, uh, 
Merrick Garland is a particular kind of prosecutor. He's the one who prosecuted the Oklahoma City bombing. That was his biggest case when he worked at the Department of Justice. And he is known for being very, very cautious and very, very disciplined and not leaping forward to take extraordinary measures unless he's got the goods. Right. Uh, that's who he's always been. That's who he was. He's very patient and he, he and arguably his style is very laborious. Um, and uh, it's just the way he does things. And so, um, you know, it's easy to accuse uh, and speculate that this was done for political reasons. Uh, my guess, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. My sense of Merrick Garland is no, it's not the case. I mean, obviously, that's just my opinion from what I understand about him. But you know, the timing of it, you know, if he if he was doing it for political reasons, he would have done a lot sooner than this. He was taking immense amount of, to use the formal legal term, he was taking an immense amount of crap for doing nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, this is not a on the scale of things that Trump is likely being investigated for, uh, though, theoretically, you know, taking top secret documents out of the White House, taking them home with you is a pretty serious thing to do. Um, this is nothing compared to all the other stuff they're investigating yeah. him for. This is basically let let's speed run getting this out of off the docket of things we need to take care of because we don't know what's going to be happening because he, he's very likely he's going to be announcing during the midterms that he's going to run for president again. Yeah, and there's a lot of debate within the Republican Party and generally in the media what uh, what uh, what the best timing for him would be. Uh, an additional point that I, I didn't make earlier, or I, I, I indirectly referred to, um, to get a search warrant in August for documents that as of February, you believe might still be there, uh, you're not going to get a search warrant. The search warrant can't be the information in the affidavit for the search warrant can't be, Hey, a few months ago, we knew some stuff was there. So can you give us a search warrant to now to go there and look for it? Uh, they've got to be able to show they have probable cause to believe the documents are still there. Um, and that nexus, that timing nexus is really important because to some, I go back and forth on this, back and forth on this. To some, it indicates they got inside information from somebody who spends time at Mar-a-Lago and can see that kind of stuff or has had conversations with Trump recently about that stuff, the stuff, so to speak, being there. Um, so that's important to point out. It, it, it suggests there may be more going on here. Professor Boucher, director of the International Criminal Law and Justice Programs, law.unh.edu slash ICLJ to learn more about those programs. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.